Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of Worth Point LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Worth Point. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hey everyone, John Chapman today on the podcast. I interviewed Robert Farrington, who runs the collegeinvestor.com website. We talk about his background and his experience uh, dealing with student loans after he graduated from college and how that led into him starting this website and blog, which is now just an amazing resource. Robert is really the number one go-to guy when it comes to student loans and understanding all of the ins and outs. So we had a great discussion. If you're at all interested in either sending a child to college at some point in the future or you're living with student loans and you're early in your career, this is a terrific episode. So Hold on to your hats, and without further ado, we'll bring on Robert Farrington. Hey, Robert Farrington, thanks for coming to the podcast. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. You are the founder of thecollegeinvestor.com and America's student loan expert. So I'm pumped to have you here. This is a major topic, of course, for anyone who's reading in the news. So, you know, we really need to start talking about some of the myths that are out there today and debunk some of the headlines. But before we go too far in there, this is a conversation that you've been having for over 10 years. You started this website in 2009. I'm surprised you haven't gotten tired of this yet. But give us some perspective, Robert, of uh, your background, your personal situation, and why this is such a meaningful topic for you. Yeah. So I I started the college investor uh, in when I was done with college. And I actually really wanted to talk about like investing and other money topics. But then I was one of these student loan borrowers that started having issues, right? So I had $43,000 in student loan debt when I was done. And my loan servicer started misapplying my payments. Misapplying? What do you mean? Yeah. So like I was on auto pay and then all of a sudden I got like an email, like I didn't check it. And I got an email one day that said, like, you are behind, you missed, you're late on a payment. And I was like, how is this even possible? Because it was like set up to auto pay. And so I had to go into this whole customer service battle and like get it fixed. And I wrote about my horror story with okay. it. Yep. And this was about like a year and a half into my blog. And it was like one of the first articles that was like, everyone was like sharing it and saying like, this was happening to me too. And this is a real problem. And this was eye-opening. This was before you saw the headlines today. Like student loans weren't very talked about. And I started just diving in more and responding to comments and learning about these topics myself. And it just opened this whole can of worms about all the different issues and problems and then all these programs and options to help people, but how complicated they are in some ways to apply for. So I just started educating myself and learning and writing and just diving into this topic so much. And so here we are today, like fast forward and I know a lot more than student loans than I probably should, but I also (laughs) enjoy helping people navigate uh, this complex situation. It's not easy. Um, There's a lot of options. But on the same time, because there's so many options, it almost makes it more confusing because you get like analysis paralysis, right? Like, am I doing the best? Is this the best for me? And so 
that's where we are. And it's, yeah. it's tough. It's, it's making the news, you know, however you feel about the politics of it. I do appreciate that. Like people are talking about the issue more and like, there's a light being shined onto, um, this whole situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to just get your perspective on as somebody who's lived it and then been in the game over these past 10 years is just a, a, some perspective on how we got here. Uh, some statistics for today in 2019, like well over a trillion dollars in outstanding debt. It's almost close to like 1.5 trillion, which is insane. And one point, uh, but, almost 1.6, probably by the time this goes live, yeah. it'll be at 1.6. I mean, just it's just scary. racking it up. Right. And, uh, yeah, a quick Google search tells me that in 2008, there was 140 billion and a big number, but we're like way 10 X we're, we're 10 X the amount of student loan debt. I mean, it's totally exploded. Are, are, what are some of the main drivers? I could probably come up with some, but for, for you, that's actually like lived alongside this. What are some of the drivers that have moved us for however, you know, just in just such a short period of time, just an explosion of student loan debt? Well, it's not a short period of time. It's, it's been a compounding over the last 30 years. It all kind of came to a head in the Great Recession where, you know, college was a really viable option and more people went to college and more people went to trade schools and more people went to um, alternative for-profit schools and didn't necessarily see the ROI. They were borrowing a lot more and they didn't have jobs. So they were also borrowing for living expenses and other things. And, and that was one of the big turning points. But you know, it's been a problem growing since the 90s, mm. maybe even the late 80s. Okay. And the reason is, is it's the cost of education has risen, right? Yeah. And you can ask yourself why, but it kind of goes down to competition and America's drive to send everyone to college, right? Yeah. So college students are customers of colleges, right? And colleges compete for this, right? So we're gonna get kind of like we're gonna get like on you know macroeconomics. Yeah, here. it really is. I mean, these are but, just some laws of economics, actually. Right. <laughs> but like back in the early or the '80s and '90s, competition for colleges was based on academic quality and you know like the how how that program ranks right yes, nationally yes. and so how do you rank a program you hire great faculty and staff and researchers and stuff and it was basically personnel costs yeah. and personnel costs in the big scheme of things are cheap right you could pay a professor $200,000 and give him you know a couple you know student aides and like he might be happy to come to your school and boost your program but then you know as these top schools all had great programs what's the next level of competition. Mm -hmm. Well, then it becomes facilities mm -hmm. and facilities are expensive. So expensive. Yeah. Reading right? libraries and dorms and uh, yeah, facilities. It's just, that's probably so expensive. Right. And so then they start borrowing these huge bonds and, you know, passing debt and then they pass that cost on to students. And so that's when you start seeing the big rise because yes. now like, let's just say you're a top tier student and you're comparing three universities. Well, if they all have top notch programs, well, then the next criteria you're grading them on is what are the dorms like? And what yeah. are the eating facilities My like? Experience, right? Right. And so that's where these colleges invested in that. And they knew because of the rules of student loans that, you know, college students could pay for any cost. So if they raise the tuition by $1,000, it's not going to change their applicant flow because the students could get a student loan to borrow that. Mm. And so I'm actually a big proponent on limits on borrowing. Mm. Um, you know, there's definitely pros and cons. It's not a one size fits all solution. Sure, that's a good point. But you know, when you limit the amount of federal borrowing, you also limit students' ability to pay for inflated costs. And yeah. so colleges would have to make 
fundamental choices on where they're going to allocate their dollars and how they're going to do that. So in the big scheme of things, it should theoretically lower prices. But, you know, you also could potentially, you know, harm lower income individuals and prevent them from getting into certain schools. Like there's definitely cons. But if you want to control the macroeconomic cost of colleges, you also need to limit that borrowing because as long as there's the ability to borrow limitless dollars to pay for college, colleges can raise the price to pay for things Mm. and pass that cost on to students. And they don't, you know, and that's kind of how we got here, but that it didn't happen overnight, right? It was every year since like the nineties, tuition's gone up $500, but over 20 years now that it's gone up $10,000. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Makes sense. Let's speak to, uh, maybe we can break this into two chunks. I want to speak to people that are, are, are living with student loan debt. They've graduated, they're in their working career, but I actually want to first speak a little bit, maybe more to like parents that have uh, young children. I mean, I've got three little kids and you've got two kids as well. So like, let me first think about as parents are approaching, they've got kids either in junior high or high school, they're going to go through an application process. Give me just some of your feedback. If you were speaking to a room of uh, parents with young kids before they go to school, how can they wrap their head around what is available and what are some do's and don'ts for, for their situation? Yeah. So first off, have these conversations early. Middle school is great. Like you should be talking to your kids about your family budget and your money and your savings, you know, age appropriate ranges. But by the time they're in ninth or 10th grade, they should have a clear picture on what mom and dad are going to pay for college and what's expected of them. Because if you're not having this conversation until they're applying for college, like there's going to be broken hearts and tears and a lot of family drama. And so it's like set expectations early and know what it is. But I think the big thing is, is too, is that there's this, one of the myths, I guess we can start debunking is that you don't need to borrow the full cost of college, right? I like to view the paying for college conversation as a pie. And there's a lot of different pie slices. You can have your parents can save the kids could save, you know, they, maybe they get gifts from grandma every year. Right. And in all these pie slices, they might not grow into huge amounts, but every little bit helps. Right. The kid can, the child can start working and saving and they could also work during college and have some of that earnings go right to the, um, you know, tuition bill. The parents are likely still working. And so they could, you know, put some of their income that's current income towards this. Right. And so there you go. Like just, Without even touching loans, we've already knocked out four or five different ways to pay. Mm. Then you do have like your college savings plans. Then you do have scholarships and you have grants and you have work study programs and fellowships. Then we finally get to like looking at borrowing and student loans. And then you should definitely do the federal loans first and then private loans. Mm. But when it comes to borrowing, it's a big ROI discussion. Okay. So you probably think of ROI a lot in the investing world, right? (laughs) Right. College is an investment and we need to start thinking about it as such. So if you buy a house and you borrow too much for that house, it's a terrible investment. You find yourself underwater, the payments are too much, you can't afford it. You know, and that's what happens when you borrow too much to pay for school. You know, student loans aren't bad. Like they're not this general bad thing. I mean, they can be if you spend $200,000 and all you wanted to do was art history, like not (laughs) going to work out. Right. Uh, But you know, if you think about how much you're borrowing and you borrow an appropriate amount for the career you want to do, or the reason you're going to school, 
um, you know, it can be a great investment in boosting your lifetime earnings. So that's what we have to think about. And that's where it's, if you have these conversations when your child's a freshman or a sophomore in high school, and you start getting them to think, getting them exposure to different careers and different choices and have them get a good feeling about what they want to do, you could have rational conversations about how much you can spend. And the cool thing is, is we have Google and Glassdoor. And I mean, you can type in any career and get a good salary estimate right now. Yes. Right? So you can know if you want to be a teacher, you know that in your state, the, you know, average starting salary is $40,000 a year. Mm. So don't borrow $100,000, right? Like, but if you're going to go be a computer science engineer, you know, the average starting salary in XYZ state is 58,000. You can probably borrow more because you're going to have a higher starting salary. And you need to have these conversations about what that looks like Mm -hmm. and how that goes. And, you know, parents need to be okay that maybe college isn't the option for everybody. Mm -hmm. That's That's a scary thought for a parent, right? That is a scary thought. I think there's the the social impact of that feels weightier than, um, you know, maybe people want to admit. But you want, it is, but the real social, like social, like, you know, the, what your neighbors and your family thinks is I just want your child to be successful. Yeah, great. And I think college is appropriate for, you know, 40, 50, maybe 60% of individuals. Mm-hmm. But I also think that other types of education mm-hmm. or other career choices are appropriate for most. Like there's kids that just don't want to work an office job. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, every high school in America now doesn't teach auto shop or wood shop or any of these trades. And they've replaced all those in most schools with computer tech mm-hmm. and things things like that. Mm-hmm. And so what kids were exposed to when you and I were going to high school right. and you know even our, our parents they don't get exposed to that anymore. Yeah. So unless there is a family member or a parent that's like in one of these alternative non-college bound careers, you know, that child might not realize that you know you can go be an electrician and work for your local power company and make $180,000 a year within 10 years. And have no debt and have all your training paid for and get like union healthcare that costs you nothing. And so like when you look at these outcomes at 28, yeah. you know, you could have a, a college graduate that overextended themselves with student loans and is struggling financially at 28. Or you could have someone that decided to go to trade school, become a lineman at their local power company and has zero debt great healthcare and, you know, maybe has been putting away five, $10,000 in their bank account every single year. And at 28, they have a hundred thousand dollar net worth. Whereas the other student has a negative hundred thousand dollar net worth because of their loans. Right. And so like, it's all about outcomes is what we really want as a parent. We just want happy, healthy, you know, positive outcomes. So awesome. I love that because I think some of this too is um, putting color or meat on the bones of what the, the career paths could look like. And I think that's probably the responsibility of the parent and and, um, and that takes a lot of work, but it's incumbent upon the parents if they really want the best outcome to say, you know, working a, an electrician's job for um, a construction company or maybe uh, an industrial income like real estate company could be a terrific career path. I mean, it needs to be fulfilled by somebody. So it right. doesn't always have to be this, uh, you know, IT computer tech. And I think that, that's, a, I'm so glad you brought up that real world example and that really hits home and I, that's super helpful. Exactly. And it's hard because like you said, like, I think we've had this mindset that like everyone needs to go to, everyone needs to go to college. Everyone needs to go to college. And it's like, if college is the right thing for you, go to college. But you know, if you don't know, 
Don't go spend, you know, $50,000 to find yourself. Go yeah. work for a year or two because I promise you the colleges will always take your money. So if you decide at 22 <laughs> to go back to school, oh, they're not going to reject point. you, right? Oh, that's such an important point. Yeah, you don't need to go and spend all that money to find yourself. I think taking a part-time job or a gap year or some, something like that might be, or maybe even just community college for, for, for crying out. And that's it. And so that's the other thing is let's just talk about these alternatives too, because let's just say you want to be a teacher. And let's just say mom and dad don't have a lot of other pie slices. And so student loans are going to be a big factor. And if you look at the cost of a four-year school, you might suddenly be at like $60,000 in debt and you're like, this doesn't work out. Well, looking at something like a community college for your first two years, knock out your general education credits. Like I promise you, like freshman college English is the same everywhere you go. Like, Mm, you know, freshman algebra in college is the same. And then here's the other interesting statistic is community college transfers are actually the highest graduation rate from a four-year college mm, by like that. Yeah. 10% more. So if you go from high school to college, it's like a 68% graduation rate, which is a little scary, right? I mean, so incredibly low, so much lower yeah. than I thought it would be. But a community college transfer is almost 78% graduation rate because they put in the work. They're really vested. If you're going to community college, you probably are dealing with some social shame maybe and other things. But on the flip side, you're also going to have economic benefits Yes, and you have a higher success rate if you succeed. Mm. So, you know, it's, you got to weigh these options and it's hard because the math and the statistics are what they are, but there's so much more psychology to the story (laughs) and family relationships. I say it's like student loans and paying for college is like what every family dreads because it's family dynamics, it's money, it's keeping up with the Joneses and social stigma, potentially taxes. It's like basically every taboo subject at Thanksgiving dinner (laughs) is like what paying for college involves, right? Yeah. And I think that's probably where it breaks down a lot. Coming and speaking as a financial planner, that's where it all breaks down (laughs) is the social pressure, keeping up with the Joneses, Mm -hmm. it's talking with parents, maybe parents are divorced or maybe there's a strain with the grandparents. So it seems like it's all that. Um, One one thing I want to just pivot to is maybe a little bit on FAVSA, uh, the application for that federal loan. And then like, yeah. one thing, the, the, the EFC, the um, expected financial contribution. So yeah. I think maybe one concern is like uh, parents not understanding or maybe like, you know, not knowing ahead of time of what the, the, the FAVSA application process is like. Is that something that you feel like you can speak to a little bit to give again young parents an expectation? Yeah. I mean, it's not hard. It's just, it's, it's paperwork. It's tedious. So if you want to get eligibility for any type of scholarship, financial aid, you have to fill out this FAFSA. And the FAFSA calculates this magic number called your expected family contribution, which honestly, anyone who's ever seen an expected family contribution, it's a kind of a joke number. Like they expect these families to contribute a lot of money and that's not always realistic. But what the FAFSA FAFSA does unlock is it unlocks your ability to get student loans. Mm -hmm. It unlocks your ability to get Pell Grants. And then most colleges and universities use your FAFSA to calculate any potential scholarships, grants, work study, and financial aid that could be offered directly from the college. So Every single student should apply for the FAFSA. You do it, um, you know, when you're applying for school. So like your senior year of high school, and then you do it every single year when you're in school, even if you don't plan on getting financial aid, maybe you make too much. If you're taking student loans, you need to, 
But I recommend you do it just so at least you have the options. Like you'll get that award letter every single March. You'll be able to see what your options are. And you can decline the options, but at least you know what your options are. So take the time, fill it out. The online thing is actually pretty easy. What it does is you log in, you do it, and then it links to the IRS website. You enter your code, it pulls all your tax data in, it's pretty seamless, but okay. I think it's a hard thing for a lot of parents to swallow because it's like your children are applying for this, but then they need the parents' tax and income information. That can be scary if you yeah. haven't had these conversations like exactly. we just talked about when they were freshmen <laughs> yeah. in high school, sophomore mm-hmm. in high school. Mm-hmm. So like that's why they're going to know one way or another. So it's like have the conversations early so the expectations are set. And so you have a good idea of what's going to happen when they are applying for school and they're doing the FAFSA and they need your, when they're like, what's your AGI mom and dad? And it's like, <laughs> like scary conversation. Maybe it can be, some, but if you like, haven't thought about it ahead of time. Yeah. And exactly. Some of those conversations, that's really interesting. <laughs> and I want to, I want to jump to the other side of the fence. Let's just uh, um, kind of put together a hypothetical situation. Um, but you know, for somebody that's coming out of school that's maybe 25 and they've got the average amount of student loan debt of like 30 or $40,000. I think yeah. like th- this is where the rubber meets the road because as a financial planner, people are asking me, how do I prioritize my cash flow into mm-hmm. paying for rent? paying for my four, putting in contribution to my 401k, paying down my debt. Do I defer my debt or do I um, consolidate or something like that into um, some other type of loan? Um, so uh, help, help walk through the, the 25 to 30 year old that has some of that, yep. how you start thinking about the prioritization and some of yeah. that. Yeah. So you just said like the magic words of this whole problem. You mentioned deferment and repayment plans and like forgiveness. Like there's so much jargon and so much complicated stuff. And this is where so it gets scary, yeah, it right? Scary. And so the number one thing that you need to do, you graduate college, get organized with your loans. I can tell you that 99.9% of everyone that emails me, reaches out to me and says, I'm struggling with my loans, cannot tell me how much debt they have. They cannot tell me what their monthly payment is. They don't know where all their loans are. Everyone that struggles with their debt is just not organized with their debt. So it starts there. And it's hard though. The average graduate has five loans. And it makes sense. You get one your freshman year, your sophomore year, your junior year, your senior year. Plus most people either take a fifth year or they have like a summer semester or something, right? So you get five loans. You likely don't live in the same place you started in freshman year. You probably like lived at home when you filled out the you know FAFSA or the loan application, or maybe you were in the dorms or an apartment. So like the lenders might not have your current information to get your statement and all this stuff. So you've got to just lay it all out, make sure all the contact information is updated, like you're getting your statements so that you can even Great make point a rational decision on your loans. And there's cool resources. If you're really struggling to find it, literally Google how to find my student loans and you can find the national student loan data system. Cool. Maybe you can link to it, but like you type in your information there and like it'll pull up all your federal loans. And if you have private loans, you could pull up your credit report and all your private loans will be listed there as well. So it's a little more challenging if you're not organized, but you're not out of luck. You can still find all your stuff make contact, get your information updated so that like when you lay it out, you can decide the next steps. And the next steps is picking how you're going to pay these things back, right? Got it. Okay. Yeah. I think uh, getting organized like is, 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 is a challenge, but 
how many times do you still get mail to your parents' address? Because that was where you lived when you first uh, signed up for whatever this is. So that's a, a so such a little, a small thing that can go unnoticed, but that's an important reminder. It is. And it's like literally the number, I only bring it up because it is the number one problem. Everything else kind of falls into place once you know what you got. And so it's the next step is just really picking that repayment plan that works for you. And so this can be a tough pill for people to swallow, but the best repayment plan is the one that you can afford to make the payments on every month without fail. Mm. Now, why this is a tough pill to swallow is that that could be an income-driven repayment plan where your monthly payment every month isn't even paying the balance. And so every month you see your loan growing even though you're making payments. And that's, that can be a mental challenge for some people because they're like, I'm making no progress and I'm paying all this money and stuff. But the alternatives are so much worse. So if you don't pay your student loans, first off, let's just say you like ignore it because you feel like you can't afford it. Uh, right. You're automatically going to see your student loan balance grow by 30% on the nine month mark. They're going to tack on collection costs and accrued interest. It's just boom, 30% growing your loan. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's amazing. And they never go away. So, you know, when we talk about loans, loans have collateral. We talk about a mortgage, the collateral is the house. You don't pay your mortgage, they take your house. Exactly. Car loans, same thing. Well, the collateral that most people don't talk about with student loans is the collateral is your ability to earn and your earnings. And so if you don't pay your student loans, they're going to garnish your wages. They're going to seize your tax returns. They will even take disability payments. And if you kick this to retirement, they'll take your social security payments. So Amazing. literally, if you have the ability to earn money, the government is going to take their cut of your money yep. as like effectively repoing your house, right? Yep. Or repoing your car. And so if you just do this, and then meanwhile, your loan's growing because they're not going to take your money for free. They're charging you collection costs on your loans. And so what most people don't realize when they're in default is that none of that money that they're garnishing really ever goes to your loans. It just goes to pay the collection costs to garnish the money. And it's like this vicious, nasty cycle. That's so, so nasty. just pay your loans. Even if you feel like it's going nowhere, that is the best thing you can do. And I promise you, here's the hard part is when you're 22 to 25, like we're talking about, maybe right. 28, right. you're also statistically at the lowest income of your yes. entire life. Yes. It will grow. It will get better. You will likely promote up in your career or change exactly. jobs or, you know, all this stuff. And so like you can reassess every couple of years and decide if you're still on the right track. Yeah, but the number point. one is just get on a repayment plan that you can afford. And, you know, there's hacks and things that we could talk about later, but like you can, you yeah. can play with that a little bit, but that's the key. So I want to talk about the income-driven repayment plan for a second. Um, yeah. What's the frequency of checking that and what loans are, is that available for or not? Yeah. So there's four income-driven repayment plans. We can't, of course, we can't make it easy with student loans. No. So there's income-based repayment, pay-as-you-earn, revised pay-as-you-earn, and income-contingent repayment. And the cool thing with these programs is that they base your monthly payment on your loans, not on an arbitrary number, but on a percentage of your income. Mm. And that percentage is either 10 to 15% on average of your income. And so if you're struggling, that could actually be $0 a month. Like let's just say you are unemployed at the six month mark after college and you got to start making payments and you just couldn't get a job for whatever reason. 
right? Don't defer your loans. Get on one of these income-driven repayment plans. Your payment would still be $0 a month, the same as if you were in deferment, but these income-driven repayment plans also potentially put you on the track for loan forgiveness. Maybe public service loan forgiveness or the income-driven repayment plans themselves include loan forgiveness at the end of them. And so, you know, you're on the right track. If you keep deferring, 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 there's no loan forgiveness at the end of that tunnel. And so you're really harming yourself, but you're in the same monthly situation of zero, Mm. but at least on one track, you have a light at the end of the tunnel. At what frequency do they look at your income? Because let's say, you know, uh, two years into your career, you get a promotion and that, you know, percentage-wise drastically increases your income. Is it every tax year or what other frequency? It's... At the 12 month mark of when you started repaying your loan. So every year, but it's on your loan year, yeah. not necessarily your tax year. Okay. So that has some benefits, right? Like you get a mid year review or a raise, like you got a few months to milk that money before your loan payment's gonna adjust higher. Great. But on the flip side, if you lose your job, you can actually recertify earlier and drop your payment. Okay. So let's just say if something bad happens, right? And mid-year through, you lose your job and you're unemployed. Well, you can recertify your income on zero and get your loan payment to go to zero effectively um, midway through the year. They won't raise it through the year at the midway mark, but they will lower it for you if you recertify your income, which is another benefit of these plans, right? Yeah, yeah. Talk, talk a little bit, Ben. Uh, we were chatting before the recording about uh, the, the, um, the student loan forgiveness and some of the myths that are out there. So just help us understand uh, what, what is or is not the right way to approach uh, student loan forgiveness. So the one plan that's in the headline all the time right now is public service loan forgiveness. And the myth that we're kind of talking about was this 99% of people getting rejected. So first off, it's a total myth because all the 99% of people that got rejected shouldn't have applied and never qualified to start with. I mean, you know, there was no expectation that these people would get approved. They were just fishing. And that's sad to me that they somehow thought this. But on the flip side, if I was to say, I'm going to write you a check today for $50,000, wouldn't you like understand the requirements to get your $50,000? Right? Yes. And so there are, there's four main requirements for public service loan forgiveness. And the fourth one's kind of a joke. The first one is you have a direct student loan. So any loan that was made after October of 2007 is a direct student loan. If you had loans before that, your loans don't qualify. It's as simple as that. If you have loans after that, your loans qualify. So you could reconsolidate and get a new loan, maybe. And if you have an old loan, you could reconsolidate and get a new loan. Then your new loan might qualify. But basically, that 2007 is the cutoff mark. Before that, don't qualify. After that, qualify. So that's qualification number one. Qualification number two is be on the right repayment plan. So these income-based repayment plans we were just speaking about are the right ones. IBR, ICR, pay, repay. This is the other one that most people weren't on the right repayment plan, which is silly because these plans are also the best in terms of having the lowest monthly payment. But if you aren't on the right repayment plan, you don't qualify. Number three is work in qualifying public service and fill out the employment certification form. So it's just shocking to me that 30% of everyone that applied and got rejected just didn't fill out the form. So, come like, like, come on, like, and the, the, and the 
education puts these stats out. And that's why I get frustrated because, yeah. you know, the headline number is like shocking. But when you actually read it, I'm just like, seriously? Like if you filled out a job application, you can fill out this form. It's not hard. But what people do is they skip boxes. So one of the boxes on this form is what is your employer's tax ID number, right? And you might not know where to look for that. You might not think, oh, it's on my W-2. I mean, we're in finance. So like we know where to find that. But you know, the average person's not. And so I, I respect that. But like, come on, fill out the form 100% or else they will reject it. And then the number fourth thing is you have to do this for 120 payments or 10 years. So you got to do steps one, two, and three, have the right loans, right repayment plan and fill out the form. And you do that for 10 years. And that's step four. And you do that and you get loan forgiveness. And here's the other thing why it's misleading is that since the first time you could ever be eligible for this was November, uh, November 2017, right? 10 years. Like that means you had to like follow Congress, like know exactly when it was passed and then like certify it right away. Like, of course, nobody did it. Congressional Budget Office estimated that there would be 100 people in the first year. That would be November and December that would qualify. And you know how many people qualified? 92. Their estimates were spot on because like, there was just no way that anyone was going to meet those four criteria starting in month one. Like, I mean, what are the odds of that? What are the odds? Yeah, very, very low. Yeah. And so... Now let's like think of some math here. So the, the rules went into effect in, Oct- uh, in 2007. It's a 10 year program, but most of these repayment plans we were talking about, IBR, pay as you earn and repay didn't come until later. IBR actually first came into effect in 2009 and then pay in 2011 and repay in 2012. And so now it's like starting to make more sense. If you were on IBR in 2009, What's 10 years from that? 2019. Now we're talking. And then if you want to go into repay, 2012, we're talking 2022. Right. And that's where I think these headlines are misleading. And so also the data exists for this. And I'll pull it up just to give you the stats. So in 2025, which means you started loan repayment in 2015, there is over 150,000 people on track to get their loans forgiven in 2025. Mm. Like the numbers are startling. Even next year, even in 2020, I think it goes up to like 17,000 people. And then in like 2021, it goes up to like 45,000 people. Like the numbers start growing dramatically. Mm. And so it just makes sense. It's math. It's a 10-year program. And most people wouldn't have even started this until 2012, 2013, 2014. And also, yeah. if you're going to college, right? Like you go to college for four years. You started college in 2010. You go to college for four years. You graduate. You start repayment in 2015. Well, yeah, you're not going to get your loans for you until 2025. It's 10 years, guys. <laughs> We've got a long way to go for some of those people. It is. And that it's just frustrating because people are applying for something they don't qualify for. So yeah. there's a definitely an education component and could yeah. we have done better that? But like on the flip side, nobody cares more about your money than you. Yeah. If someone's going to cut you a check for 30,000, 20,000, just read the requirements and follow them. And it's not like Fed loans hiding it too. So you might've seen this with some of your clients, but like you upload the employment certification or you send it in and Fed loan in your secure mailbox will give you a count of your payments that qualify. So like, unless you're not checking your loans for 10 years, which I mean, I guess it's possible. But like, once again, like if you just log into your loan account, you can see what's qualifying. <laughs> So there's no surprises. There shouldn't be surprises. Not to say there's no surprises. And I don't want to dismiss the servicing issues, right? 
there are issues with these loan servicers. You are calling a $10 an hour call center rep yes, in a call yes, center. Yes. They're not your financial planner, no, right? That's a great point. And so they're just trying to get the job done. And then on the flip side, are you even asking them the right questions to get the right answer? Mm -hmm. So if you call this $10 an hour call center rep and say, I can't afford my student loans, well, they're going to offer you a loan deferment. They don't know what you're on or if you're going for public service. They don't know your whole story like a, a financial planner or an expert That's will. That's a great point. Like they're just trying to answer your question and they're not like here to help you. Like they are, but like they're not like here to like dive into your personal financial story, That's look at everything. And right. tell and you, that, and, that, and that's actually so nice to know that that's not their responsibility. That's not up to them. You know, they're just re re receiving into that phone call. And that actually, if you need to dig into what your options are, you have to start with a qualified professional first to then maybe guide you to then make the conversation or the phone call. Exactly. And yes, I think there are some systemic issues. I think there are some things they could do better. I think the government could structure their contracts to like align their incentives with borrowers. Like, there's a whole smorgasbord. This is why they're getting sued. This is why things are happening. But on the flip side, like everything is black and white. I mean, you can Google every form, you can download it online. Like you actually never need to talk to a loan servicer if you don't want to. Like, and once again, no one cares more about this than you. Like you got to kind of own and have, there's got to be a level of personal responsibility. And so that's why I do get shocked because it, yeah. this is a 10 year program. Like you're telling me in 10 years, like you're just, you're shocked you're getting rejected and you never took any steps to like figure this out over 10 years. Mm, like yeah. I get a little just angry inside, like, because <laughs> can, I'm just I like, yeah. where is this personal responsibility? Like mm. there, there needs to be some ownership. Like there are issues. That's I don't want to dismiss them, but like, they're not unsolvable issues. Like, <laughs> like they're all. very solvable. Yeah, so, and I see it. I see them solved. I, I've seen people get loan forgiveness. I've seen the confirmation emails. Like it really does work. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, well, that makes me ask like just, um, you know, in an effort to, to <laughs> attempt to wrap up a little bit, but just like people are going to want to know where they can find this information. So um, I'm, I imagine your website is one of the best that's out there, but give people an explanation of what resources are out there and where, where should they start if they need more information. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, so one, we always like to like kind of just rag on the government, but studentloans.gov is like the Bible of student loans. It's a phenomenal resource. It has all the language. It has all the laws. Like you can find everything from the from them right there. Then you have websites like mine, The College Investor. I try to make it easier to understand. Then we have tools like I created Loan Buddy. Um, so Loan Buddy is a freemium tool, but on the free level, you can find, you enter all your information, you can find the lowest repayment plan for you. And there's definitely upgrades there. But you know, like there are definitely ways that you can get unbiased opinions. You can know what the answer is for your loans. And awesome. you never even have to pick up the phone and talk to a call center rep. Yeah. That's awesome. I love it. Man, Robert, you're doing a huge, huge service to millions of people in the US. So I guess I want to say thank you. And I'm honored to have you <laughs> on the show. This information is, is incredibly important. So I hope many of the listeners uh, just take it upon yourself, take the personal responsibility, educate yourself. It sounds like so much of what Robert has talked about today, the answers are out there and you can come up with a solution. So Robert, is there anything else that we haven't covered today that you were hoping to discuss with some of the listeners? No, but I think even for you, like the, these issues are complex. Like the laws are the laws, but your own personal financial situation 
can be different. And there's definitely levers you can pull and things you can do. And so talking to like a financial planner can make a lot of sense. Like if you just need to get your income certified, like you can do that yourself or use a free or freemium tool like Loan Buddy. Um, but like if you want to dive into like the tax implications of like different mm-hmm. ways to file, married filing jointly, filing separately, and mm-hmm. and like should I do my 401k to lower my AGI and potentially lower my loan payment? Like there's so much complexity and leverage you can yeah. pull. Like yeah. that's where I do think like don't dismiss the you know a financial planner or anything like that. Like it can be very valuable. And that call center rep is not gonna help you with that. Yeah. They can't they can't walk you through that. They, it's not their job. It's not what they are qualified to do. So like there's there could be a better answer if you kind of work through it, understand your options and you know do a little research on it. Totally. I love it. That's a good plug. Thanks, Robert. Um, Definitely get with a good financial planner for sure who can guide you through some of these conversations. But hey, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Uh, For folks listening, be sure to check out thecollegeinvestor.com. And Robert, hope you have a great day. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.